2: it gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast Climbing in Heels is back and better than ever. I'm Julie Douglas, host of The Stuff of Life, a podcast that teases apart the tales we tell because when we crack open a story and look inside, we see the seeds of what make our world so maddening, so strange, and so achingly
0: beautiful. The Stuff of Life is a podcast about how we're all just getting by, learning, and surviving through the stories that we share. We'll look at everything from fear and what fuels it, the inconceivability of death and our desire to become immortal, to the big universal question in life, why don't men dance? Join me for the first episode on January 27th. You can find The Stuff of Life on iTunes or any other podcast provider.
2: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com
0: hello and welcome to the podcast i'm tracy v wilson and i'm holly fry as promised earlier this year uh now we have an episode on the whiskey rebellion it is something that we touched on very briefly in our history of moonshine back in october But just the little bit of detail that I got while researching that episode made me want to give it the full episode treatment.
1: American opposition to taxes has come up pretty frequently on our show, both before and after the Revolutionary War. But that sentiment didn't spontaneously arrive on the U.S. side of the Atlantic as a response to taxes implemented by the British Crown on its colonies. Violent opposition to taxes was widespread in Britain as well.
0: This was particularly true when it came to excise taxes, which were the taxes on goods that are made and consumed within the nation's borders rather than being imported or exported. There are lots of different words that have been used to describe those sorts of taxes. So taxes on imports and exports could be contentious too. But excise taxes were a comparatively new addition to the British economy. They made their first appearance in the 17th century, They were modeled after taxes that already existed in continental Europe. Opposition to the very first English excise tax, which was implemented in 1643 to help fund the English Civil War, was fierce. And it happened more than a century before the Sons of Liberty Liberty were dumping tea into the harbor on the other side of the pond.
1: At first, England's first excise tax mostly applied to things like beer and ale. But in 1644, the list of goods being taxed expanded to things like salt and beef and rabbits. Violent protests and riots followed, particularly in rural areas where the items being taxed were staples that people already had trouble affording. The backlash was so huge that Parliament had to scale back on the excise tax, repeal some parts of it entirely, and implement exceptions for the nation's poorest residents.
0: This tax protest in England had a lot in common with the Whiskey Rebellion in the United States, which began when the United States was a newly independent nation. Both protests were in response to an excise tax put into place because of the expense of war, Both of them were violent and widespread, particularly in the most rural and relatively impoverished areas that were affected by the tax. And both of them led to tax collectors being attacked, publicly ridiculed, robbed, and killed. So, in other words, as my dad likes to say when I do something that has been evidenced elsewhere in my family previously, we came by it honest. (laughs)
1: <laughs> just as England's first excise tax was implemented to fund the English Civil War, the United States' first excise tax was implemented to pay off debts from the Revolutionary War. It wasn't just the costs of the war itself. Upon becoming an independent nation, the United States had also taken on all of the debts of the former colonies.
0: Clearly, the nation needed to deal with this debt, but even in the face of an obvious need for revenue the nation's leaders and its citizens were deeply divided on the subject of taxes. One faction strongly believed that internal taxation, or the taxation on goods and revenue that remained inside the United States, should be kept out of federal hands entirely, with the federal government able to tax only imports and exports coming into the country or leaving it. This would leave internal revenue as a matter for the states to judge, based on their own needs and the ability for their own citizens to pay.
1: According to this mindset, a federal government that could apply taxes unilaterally across all the states, regardless of those states' particular economics, was deeply threatening to the concept of liberty and was just too similar to the days when the British crown could tax its American colonies without offering them representation in the government. In a slippery slope argument, this would ultimately destroy state governments in the face of federal
0: interference. The counter argument to this was basically, no, it won't. With a side of, well, if the federal government is assuming state debts, it has to do something to pay them.
1: Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton was one of the proponents of using excise taxes to settle the U.S. debts. An excise bill that was brought before Congress in 1790 was defeated. When another was proposed in 1791, opposition was fierce. And in spite of this resistance, on March 3rd, 1791, Congress instituted an excise tax on distilled liquors.
0: The amount of this tax varied based on the size of the distilling production, anywhere from 6 to 18 cents a gallon. It was either based on uh, the actual amount of production or a flat rate based on the capacity of the still. Large distilleries paid on average about 6 cents a gallon, and they were allowed to do so as one annual payment to the government. Small distilleries were charged, again, on average, about nine cents a gallon, and they had to make smaller payments over the course of the year. This
1: tax affected small distilleries much differently than it affected large ones. Payments were to be made in cash directly to a revenue officer, and many of the smallest distillers did not have a lot of cash on hand. They were often paying for the goods and services they needed by bartering their whiskey. While large distilleries that were selling their wares could just pass the cost of the tax on to customers by raising their prices, smaller distillers who were using their wares to barter had no comparable way of coming up with extra cash. So in addition to the smaller distilleries' taxes being larger per gallon, the methods and timing of payment put a larger burden on smaller distilleries than on larger ones.
0: Yeah, a genuine and legitimate question on people's minds was, where am I supposed to get the physical money ...to give to you. <laughs> like, I, I'm i doing all of my life with barter. I have no money to hand to you. That's not a thing that exists, really, in my corner of the world. Because the largest distilleries were mostly run like businesses, the federal government, and specifically the Secretary of the Treasury, were a lot more willing to extend them flexibility than they were to small, independent distillers, which a lot of times were more like home-based individual operations. So the distilleries that had the most money and the most means to deal with the law also got the most help in doing so. Over time, the government amended the tax in response to, quote, reasonable complaints. But the ones that it found to be reasonable were mostly the ones that were brought up by big, relatively prosperous, businesslike distillers.
1: Anyone who had to appear in court on excise tax matters had to do so in federal court, not state or local court. For many people living in remote western counties, the nearest federal courthouse was hundreds of miles away. So if you were, for example, one person running your own still in western Pennsylvania and you were arrested as a consequence of this excise tax, you would have to appear in federal court in Philadelphia approximately 300 miles away.
0: In addition to affecting small distilleries much more strongly than it affected big ones, the whiskey tax also disproportionately affected specific regions of the United States. And we are going to talk about how, after a word from a sponsor. The sponsor is Headspace. Uh, Let's be honest, a lot of difficulties in people's lives come out of their own heads. What? That can't be true. I I don't make up
1: any problems that don't really exist.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm a master at, at making up the thing that is going to be the worst and then thinking about that. I'm kind of an anxious person. I can get stressed out easily. Uh, all these issues, they start in your head and then they just carry over to the rest of your life outside of your head. Uh, it really doesn't have to be that way, though. You can make a huge difference in just 10 minutes a day. This change comes through guided meditation, and you can get an easy way to get into that with the Headspace app. Headspace is meditation that's made simple. It's guided meditations you can listen to whenever you want, wherever you want, right on your phone, computer, or tablet. One of the things I love the best about this is that I I personally, when I try to meditate, I get irritated when there's too much talking. And also, I tend to get out of the zone when there's no guidance. And to me, yeah, to me, the Headspace Take 10 program, which is their free 10, uh, 10 meditation group, is exactly the right amount. Always when my brain is starting to to get off course, that is when the gentle, soothing voice comes in to remind me that it's okay to have thoughts. Just let that go. It's awesome. Meditation is rooted in thousands of years of tradition and also thousands of scientific studies that show that it has positive effects on your life, like improving your focus, improving your relationship harmony, decreasing your anxiety and stress. I can say from experience, this is a thousand percent true for me. So join over four million users already getting some headspace for free right now. Download the free Headspace app and begin their Take 10 program for 10 days of guided meditation at headspace.com slash history. The Headspace Take 10 program is a 100% free way to experience the benefits of meditation in your busy, modern life. You can train your mind for a healthier, less stressed life by starting your free trial today at headspace.com slash history. That's headspace.com slash history. Now back to our story. As we talked about before the break, one of the main objections to the federal government having the power to levy internal taxes was that different states had different economic needs. The whiskey tax turned out to be a stellar example of why so many people thought this was a problem. Basically, just like the whiskey tax had a bigger impact on smaller distillers than it had on big ones, it had a much bigger impact on some states than on others. Unsurprisingly, the representatives from the states that were the most effective were also the ones who most strenuously opposed the tax in the first place. To get into how the tax disproportionately
1: affected particular states, we need to talk for a moment about the Appalachian Mountains. This mountain range runs down most of the eastern side of the United States and also into Canada. Many of the colonists who had settled in and around this range were Scots-Irish, and as we discussed in our Moonshine episode, distilling was, for many of these people, a culturally important tradition.
0: The mountains themselves also did a great job of encouraging distilling, both legally and otherwise. The terrain itself was full of valleys and hollers that were great for hiding stills in, but the ability and need to hide contraband was only one piece of this puzzle— The mountains themselves made distilling a much more feasible way for people living in them and west of them to make a living than simply farming.
1: For most of the states south of New York, the Appalachian Mountains formed either a western border or a physical barrier through the state itself. People living in the mountains or on their western side had to haul their goods east to market using pack animals to go over and through the mountains. It was safer and even more reliable to distill grains into alcohol and transport that than it was to try to move large loads of heavy, perishable product that was easily damaged by the elements. So not only was alcohol less perishable than grain, it weighed a whole lot less than the grain used to make it. Also, frankly, more people wanted to buy alcohol than wanted to buy grain.
0: Pennsylvania was the state where these factors combined in the most dramatic and obvious way. A large area of Pennsylvania lay to the west of the portion of the Appalachian rain known as the Alleghenies, and a lot of that territory had been set- settled by Scot Irish immigrants. Together, this meant that four counties in western Pennsylvania were the heart of distilling country at the time of the Whiskey, the Whiskey Rebellion. It was home to about a quarter of the distilleries in the nation, according to the Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau. So when the government passed an excise tax
1: on distilled liquors, it disproportionately affected the people living in western rural parts of several states, many of which were also comparatively very poor. Many of these same people were already frustrated with the federal government, feeling as though it wasn't doing enough to protect the residents of its western frontier from Native Americans. Western residents also thought the federal government wasn't doing enough to give the nation total control of the Mississippi River, which would be a trading opportunity they could reach without crossing mountain ranges.
0: Essentially, in most of the United States from the Appalachian Mountains West, the situation was primed for an angry backlash to this tax, which is exactly what happened.
1: At first, most of the resistance to the excise tax was nonviolent. People simply refused to pay it. They organized meetings, demonstrations, and campaigns to try to have the law repealed. The nation's westernmost residents tried to figure out how to get the people in eastern cities, the ones whose representatives had been in favor of the bill, to understand why this mattered.
0: There was a lot of not listening <laughs> and believing they knew better on the part of the people making the decisions. What? In politics? Are you sure? So strange. <laughs> Just a few months after the tax was enacted, residents of southwestern Pennsylvania met at Redstone Old Fort to try to figure out a plan. And that plan was ultimately to form their own body of elected representatives to poll the people living in Pennsylvania's western counties and send that elected delegation to Congress because they felt like their own elected senators and representatives were not actually representing them very well.
1: However... At the same time, others in Western Pennsylvania were taking a far less reasonable tack. On September 11th of 1791, a group of men disguised themselves as women and attacked an excise collector named Robert Johnson, cutting off his hair, tarring and feathering him, and stealing his horse.
0: That was a, there was a lot of cutting off people's hair and then tarring and feathering them. That was the MO for a lot of this protest. And over the next two years, Although a lot of the talk about the Whiskey Rebellion happens in Pennsylvania, every state south of New York saw protests and violence and unrest directed at the excise tax. In addition to targeting the government and its tax collectors, these protests also targeted other people in the community by harassing and ostracizing people who were in favor of the tax. Kentucky became a state on June 1st of 1792, and the entire state just refused to pay it.
1: While virtually all of the nation's Western frontier counties were refusing to pay taxes, including very heavy resistance in Western North Carolina, much of the focus of the Whiskey Rebellion is on Western Pennsylvania. This is in part because that's where the federal government put that focus. It was close to the then capital of Philadelphia, so it'd be less expensive and less hazardous to try to enforce the law there than it was in any of the other places that were rebelling.
0: In September of 1792, Hamilton drafted a proclamation condemning the rebellion and denouncing the meetings that had been held in Pennsylvania to try to address it. This proclamation went to George Washington, the president, for his signature, and it was issued on the 15th. It called the rebellion, quote, subversive of good order, contrary to the duty that every citizen owes his country and to the laws, and of a nature dangerous to the very being of a government.
1: Tensions continued to grow through 1793. About 100 people burned excise inspector John Neville in effigy in Washington County, Pennsylvania, after a militia meeting. And in Fayette County, a mob broke into the home of collector Benjamin Wells and harassed his family. A few days later, they returned armed and demanded his account books at gunpoint.
0: There was a lot of harassment and threatening behavior against basically all of the tax officials, but Excise Inspector John Neville was particularly disliked. He was a member of the Pennsylvania Assembly, and even though he had voted on a resolution condemning the tax, he then accepted the post of Excise Inspector, so people thought he was an unethical hypocrite. He then went on a tour of western Pennsylvania counties to try to enforce the tax in spring of 1794, and when he did this... A mob of citizens followed after him, talking to everyone he talked to to make sure nobody had actually paid the tax. And if they did, they would destroy that person still. In the summer
1: and fall of 1794, the Whiskey Rebellion really hit its peak. Although tensions had been ongoing for years, what happened next is what a lot of people think of when they think of the words Whiskey Rebellion. And we're going to talk about that in more detail after we have another brief sponsor break. Texture.com, we have talked about several times before, is a fantastic way to weed out only the best content that's being published right now and get yourself to the good stuff quickly and not waste your time and get a really, really good experience. Uh, it may be like the end of the holidays. Christmas has just passed us, but it is not too late to get in on some good gift giving. If you're running a little behind, I bet people would think that Texture is worth the wait as a gift. Texture is the app that gives you an all access pass to the world's best magazines right on your phone or your tablet. You can browse hundreds, literally hundreds of magazines and you can pick out the articles that interest you most. The editorial team at Texture will also recommend stories for you daily. Plus, they have these curated collections that give you a deeper dive into the topics that interest you the most. You can sign up for Texture right now, and literally seconds from now, you will have insider access to the very best reads, plus exclusive content. So with full access to the top magazines across just about every interest, that is no joke, they are all over the interest map. Texture is the one present that people would open over and over, even if they get it after the holidays. And it's a present you can give yourself and enjoy over and over and over again. And the best part is that right now, Texture is offering our listeners a free trial. So when you go to texture.com slash history, you're going to get in on that trial. And you can give it as a gift if you get in there before December 31st. So order this fantastic gift for you or a loved one with that great discount before December 31st. Try Texture for free right now when you go to texture.com slash history. And remember, you are going to be able to share this subscription with your entire family and you can download articles and whole issues for offline reading. So if you don't want to be using up your your data when you're out and about, or if you just know you're going to be somewhere where you're not going to have access to Wi-Fi, you can go ahead and preload your stuff with great content to read. Again, all over the interest map. So if you like uh Architectural Digest, you're covered. If you read Cosmopolitan, you're covered. Cooking Light is also in there. Entertainment Weekly is a magazine I read all the time, and it's right there handy digitally. I love it. So you can get into all of these great, great magazines at a really good discount, and you will be using content that you know is the best possible stuff, and you don't have to dig through mystery links online. So get into texture.com slash history.
0: The United States had a lot of other things on its mind during the 1790s besides this whole tax situation. There were ongoing battles with the nation's Native American population, which were incredibly destructive to the army and the militia, We covered a lot of that recently in our podcast on St. Clair's defeat. A huge yellow fever epidemic struck Philadelphia in 1793. Both of these things combined to mean that increasing pressures from Britain, France, and Spain seemed particularly threatening to the United States, especially as word reached the federal government that discontented citizens who were unhappy with excise tax had met with delegates from Britain and Spain. There was some that these meetings about repealing the tax were really meetings about overthrowing the government.
1: From the federal government's view, things were becoming much too precarious to have a bunch of rabble in the West refusing to pay taxes. So they started cracking down, particularly in Pennsylvania. District Attorney William Rowell ordered more than 60 distillers to appear in federal court. John Neville and U.S. Marshal David Lennox began serving the processes to all the distillers in person on July 15th.
0: The response to this from distillers was furious and immediate. The two men had only served four or five people when a mob of 30 or 40 armed men, many of whom had heard that they were literally dragging people back to Philadelphia with them, surrounded them. After learning that Lennox and Neville were just serving and not actually abducting people, they let the two men go. Although as they departed, somebody fired a shot. Exactly who and for what reason remains a little unclear.
1: The next day, around dawn, a mob surrounded Neville's home. He had previously garrisoned his home and arranged a signal with the enslaved Africans that he owned should such an event arise. The mob claimed that they were there to guard him, which he simply did not believe. He signaled to the slaves, and he, along with them, opened fire. Several in the mob were injured, one of them, Oliver Miller, mortally so.
0: People then started to call for revenge for Miller's death. Neville wrote to judges and sheriffs and nearby militia for help, but they all refused. And the only aid that he got was from Major James Kirkpatrick, who brought 10 soldiers from Fort Pitt to Neville's home.
1: The rebels, on the other hand, showed up with between 300 and 500 men and laid siege to Neville's home. Kirkpatrick managed to smuggle Neville and his family away. After a tense standoff, a battle began that lasted for about an hour. And in the midst of it, James McFarlane, an officer of the militia who were on the side of the rebels, was killed. Outraged and believing Kirkpatrick had deceived McFarlane into holding his fire to kill him on purpose, the rebels set fire to the home and many of the buildings around it, and the soldiers inside ultimately surrendered. The rebels took Major Kirkpatrick captive, then found their way to Marshal Lennox, who they humiliated and injured.
0: With the death of McFarlane who had been a local hero during the Revolutionary War, a number of prominent Pennsylvania citizens who had previously either stayed out of all this or at least stayed out of the more rabble-rousing side of the rebellion got involved. In some cases, it was because they perceived this as the last straw. And sometimes it was because the Fuhrer had grown so large that they felt pressured into doing something lest they face retaliation. Among the people who joined the more violent side of the rebellion at this point were... Hugh Henry Brackenridge, a lawyer who started offering them legal advice. David Bradford, another lawyer, offered advice on how to undermine more moderate voices in the Pennsylvania government. The rural citizens of the western counties started talking about making an assault on the town of Pittsburgh. By
1: August 1st, the number of rebels in western Pennsylvania had grown to about 7,000, including recruits from neighboring Virginia counties. They had a flag with six bars, symbolizing the four Pennsylvania counties and two from Virginia. But they didn't have any defined goals other than to just get rid of the tax. But they also had no clear plan on how to do that.
0: At this point, the federal government simultaneously dispatched negotiators to try to bring a peaceful end to things with some of the negotiations actually happening at Redstone Old Fort, which has been involved in the very start of this whole thing. At this point, the federal government did two things basically simultaneously. One was that it dispatched negotiators to try to bring a peaceful end to things, with some of those negotiations happening at Redstone Old Fort, which had been one of the meeting sites at the very start of this whole thing. At the same time, it prepared a military strategy to bring a less peaceful end to things, Under the authority of the Militia Act of 1792, the government could respond to, quote, imminent danger with the militia, provided it got a certification from a Supreme Court justice. This the government got from Justice James Wilson, so it was simultaneously negotiating and planning an assault at the same time.
1: And the result was a 12,900-man force made up of militia from New Jersey, Maryland, Virginia, and eastern Pennsylvania, under the command of Governor Henry Lee of Virginia. This force was large, but also made primarily of young, inexperienced men who weren't particularly well-provisioned. There was a huge division between affluent volunteers who had joined the force for various political and personal reasons— and the men who had been drafted into it and were generally poor and uneducated. The rebels consequently nicknamed it the Watermelon Army.
0: In spite of the derision that it got from the rebels, this huge force moved to the western frontier counties, rounding up rebels, making examples of them through flogging and humiliation, and sending them back east to stand trial. The militia force rounded people up through October and November, and then began a march back to Philadelphia with lots of captives on November 19th.
1: They arrived on Christmas Day when the militia flagged their hats with white paper to set them apart from the men guarding them and marched through Philadelphia to the jail in shame.
0: That is actually the thing that made me go, I'm going to do a whole podcast on this. How we got to the point of taking people through a shame march to the jail on Christmas Day. In the end... All but two of the men who were captured were either acquitted or had their charges dropped, and the two who were convicted were John were John Mitchell and Philip Weigel, and they were both later pardoned.
1: This government response to the rebellion changed very little. Its militia roundup didn't make it possible to enforce the tax. Many of the people who had been angriest at the government about the tax simply moved farther west, trying to get out from under the thumb of the taxman. Having had to provision such a large force in a relatively remote area did add measurable but temporary boost to local economies, though.
0: Yeah, there's probably a valid argument to be made. That, like, it definitely did bring some cash into places that had been cash-strapped thanks to needing to buy lots of crops and things to to feed soldiers. But uh, I read a couple of things that were like, was that really worth all of this trouble? Regardless, then in 1802, Thomas Jefferson re- repealed all of the nation's interior taxes, including the whiskey tax. And as we spoke about in, uh, in our episode on moonshine, the government sort of left the ta- the tax subject regarding distilling alone for a while. That's the whiskey rebellion. It's, it's, um,
1: I always envision it, when I have heard about it in the past, as involving more, I'm I'm embarrassed to admit, wacky hijinks. You know, it's well, a pretty direct violence kind of situation. It's not so much like...
0: Yeah, the closest thing to wacky hijinks is some of the events in which a mob of people would gang up on a tax collector... Like, some of them you read the accounts of, and then they went into the tax collector's home and forced him to tear up his papers and jump up and down on them. And, like, there's an element that comes off as kind of comedic, like, that a mob was literally forcing him to tear up his tax papers and then jump up and down on them. Like, that, that is a See, there were
1: wacky hijinks.
0: Like, that was the closest thing (laughs) to wacky hijinks. But at the same time, a lot of times... Like, that was a just a person trying to do his job. There were definitely people who were tax collectors who were jerks about it, but, you know, a lot of them were just folks trying to get their lives together, too. So, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and then all the tarring and feathering, that's a lot. That's not nearly as wacky as now you have to tear up your papers. Now you have to jump up and down on them. That was the one, one of the ones that I read. And then I was, I said, seriously, out loud, you seriously made him tear up his papers and then jump on them? Like,
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, and anytime we get to tarring and feathering in any sort of historical event, there's just this part of me that's like, how do you get that divorced from your humanity where you're like, this is a thing we should absolutely do? Yeah. It seems so cruel and horrifying, but. Yeah
0: and that that came up again and again as i was reading this like they then then they would cut off their hair and tar and feather them, feather them
1: Yay! yeah do you have a uh, less uh humanity stripping listener mail for us i know
0: it's actually <laughs> two listener facebook comments in response to our uh listener mail following our gallipoli episode in which we talked about segregation in nevada and the letter writer had written in to say that the the mascot of uh of the of UNLV is a rebel. And so we had two different people on Facebook. First person was Tony, and Tony said, Hello, you wonderful ladies at the Incredible Stuff You Missed in History Class. This is a great podcast. During your listener mail, a listener from Nevada said that UNLV's mascot is a Confederate symbol. As a proud Las Vegan, I am happy to say that isn't true. Thank you once again for the expansive knowledge every week. Um he pasted into a link to an article. Uh, That was called UNLV Diversity Chief, Hey Reb Mascot, Rebel Nickname, Not Tied to Confederacy. Uh, And then Chelsea replied on the same thread and said, thank you for sharing the same article I was going to post. I was shocked to hear a fellow Nevadan perpetuate an untruth. UNLV began as a satellite campus of UNR and later became a separate institution. There was a rivalry between the North and South universities, hence the idea of being a rebel. There is still a rivalry in many other arenas between the north and south of Nevada, politically, culturally, etc. 28,600 students call UNLV home for this fall 2015 semester. The 200 plus students demonstrating constitute less than 1% of the student population. There was a survey conducted campus wide in which folks could indicate their perception of our mascot. So uh, I read this article and then I also looked into some things about the UNLV mascot So, yeah, there's definitely an article from the UNLV Diversity Chief saying that the Hey red mascot and the Rebel nickname are not tied to Confederacy. But then if you go and look at the UNLV website, the mascot of UNLV was originally a wolf named Beauregard who was wearing a Confederate uniform. And Hmm. there's a little cause and effect. Like, there's some arguments to be made that maybe they were calling themselves the Rebels before they applied confederate imagery to the idea of rebels but then there was definitely a whole period of years in which the the rebel mascot was definitely a confederate soldier there was literally a confederate battle flag on the masthead of the school newspaper huh. um, and people reasonably uh in this like late 60s early 70s time frame said hey this is not cool. This specifically, there were several black athletes who were like, I don't think I'm comfortable having this mascot that is the Confederate soldier. And so the school reevaluated the, uh, the mascot that sort of redesigned it to be a Nevada, um, like a Pathfinder and not tied to Confederate imagery. Um, and the, and like took the battle flag off of the school newspaper masthead. Um, and the, Actual wording on the UNLV website says, while it was a decision based in rivalry and fun, the choice of a Confederate-themed mascot was nonetheless an unfortunate one. And then later on on the same page, which is a page about the history of the mascot, says, UNLV acknowledges that its first generation of students opted for a great name in Rebels, but chose to surround it with imagery and symbols that fell short of giving the name, of giving that name the honor it deserved. So, yes, yes, Definitely today, the Hey Reb character, that's sort of the mascot of UNLV, is specifically designed to not be tied to Confederate imagery. But there's a multiple decade tradition in which it specifically was Confederate imagery. Uh, so it, I don't think it is um, invalid at all for people to point that out Uh it kind of reminds me of the conversations that you and I had in our recent episodes about about the holiday characters from other cultures, uh, and the attempts to kind of walk back Zvarta Pete so that yeah. so that he's not so tied to like racist blackface and slavery. Um, I think it's personally, I think it's awesome for UNLV to have reevaluated their mascot and not have it be specifically a Confederate soldier, especially since uh, black student-athletes found it offensive to be on a team whose mascot was somebody who fought on behalf of slavery. But, that, like, that doesn't then erase all of those decades of time when the mascot was literally a Confederate soldier.
1: Yeah. So, it's, you know, it's one of those things that evolve. I mean, history is evolving. Like, our we talk about all the time how views evolve and they change things and... You, you still have to acknowledge what came before, even when you have evolved further. Yeah, so. well, and
0: the the, well, the article that was uh, that was linked on our Facebook, and I'll put a link to it in our show notes, um, includes this sixty page analysis of the history, and the, like the diversity officer officer has come to the conclusion that in its current iteration, uh, it is not a Confederate image. But at the same, t- like, at the same time, it calls out specifically all of these other aspects from previous years and not even that long ago previous years when it definitely was Confederate imagery. So, to clarify all that, uh, if you would like to write to us, we're at History Podcast at HowStepWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History, and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MystInHistory.tumblr.com or we're on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. If you want to learn more about what we talked about today, come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, and put the word moonshine in the search bar. You will find uh, an article about how moonshine works. You can also come to our website, which is MythAndHistory.com, where we have show notes. We have an archive of everything that we've ever talked about on the podcast. I'm going to put in our show notes a link to this article about UNLV and the other stuff from the UNLV uh, website that I referred to, so you can see that for yourself. You can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or mythandhistory.com.
2: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. issues affecting the Latin community,
1: and much more. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community. Listen to Life as a Gringo on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths, Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast! podcast.